Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. The human exploration of space is probably the most eye-catching example of the rapid development of technology during the 20th century. Just decades after the Wright brothers successfully launched the first airplane, the Soviet satellite Sputnik became the first artificial satellite to reach space. Humans quickly followed, with cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin going where no man had ever gone before in 1961, an accomplishment that by any standards was a milestone for humankind. But while Gagarin was fated as a hero around the globe, we would like to wish everyone here success in their work and also wish them success in their efforts in working for peace, which is the most important problem which is in the minds of everyone today. A darker aspect to the space exploration couldn't be overlooked, as competing superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, bitterly divided either side of Berlin's Iron Curtain, sought to gain the kind of supremacy in space that neither side could establish on Earth. What followed were a series of glorious triumphs. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And some tragic disasters for both sides. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. But how did we go from the horrors of World War II so quickly into this brave new era of exploration. In search of answers, I turned to one of the world's leading experts in the field of space history, Dr. Kathleen Lewis of the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum. The effort largely throughout Europe, the United States and Europe, including Russia, to develop rocket technology to, to, to ultimately send humans into space really began during the 1920s and 30s. And you have groups, independent, government-sponsored groups, varying over time, working on precisely that project. You have the American Rocket Society, you have Robert Goddard, you have many people in Europe, including Oberth, and in Russia you have Korolev and others working on the same technology. It just so happens that the Germans, through the strategy, the brilliant strategy of von Braun, were able to, to master that technology. So every side recognized that this was a technological breakthrough. As a weapon, the V2 was not as effective as, certainly not as effective as Hitler would have liked. But in fact, it was more effective at killing those people who were working in concentration camps to make it than it was to kill the people against whom it was aimed. But the recognition that this technology, this something that had been worked on for a good 20 years throughout the world, you know, mastering it, turning rocket experimenting from, you know, just the avocation of amateurs into a professional engineering development had been under, under the works for 20 years. So it was an immediate recognition that somebody had accomplished 
what many have been working on. Using a military technology into civilian purposes, that's a strong characteristic of the space age. You know, if we look at the technologies that we consider part of the space age infrastructure that we all live in, what we're doing here now, communication via satellites, looking at Earth from space, navigation, and including the rocket technology, these were all military developments that were expanded and adapted for civilian uses. So that's very common now, and we really don't think about it. Well, Yuri Gagarin deservedly received plaudits for his heroic journey into space. He wasn't the first mammal, or even animal, to leave Earth. That honour fell to one of our four-legged friends, Laika, a stray dog found wandering the streets of Moscow. But while humans enjoy extensive training before such adventures, how on earth do you prepare your pup to board a rocket? It was a question I put to Dr. Lewis. They were guinea pigs because they simply didn't have the understanding of what they were doing. They did test and screen the animals for their reaction and response. On the case of the, the monkeys, they had trained them to press buttons just so they could measure what was happening. The purpose of sending animals into space, and, and we still do some animal experimentation, is we, at the time, we really didn't know how humans would respond to those gene forces. We had enough of a understanding that pilots, when they're pulling G-forces, would pass out as blood pulled in their legs and away from their brain. But we really didn't know for certain if a human would remain rational under those, uh, those prolonged circumstances. So what they wanted to do was you know, measure animal responses, see if they not only were able to respond in in a pre-programmed way, but also if they were able to regain composure and regain health. Unfortunately, the first experiment of that time, ascending Laika into space, didn't allow them to determine that. The design of the capsule was inherently flawed, and she did not recover from the launch effects. The radiation, the heat, and, and the disorientation of the flight killed her. But later, subsequent animal experiments that both the Soviets and the U.S. did really demonstrated that if animals could go into space, recover, come back down to Earth and be healthy, and there's a famous picture of one of the space biologists, Ole Gazienko, holding up Bielka and Strelka, the two dogs who were successfully recovered. That was a demonstration that animals not only could survive the flight, they were healthy. They produced puppies. Carolyn Kennedy was one of the recipients of that litter. While the animals were unfortunately seen as dispensable in some quarters, human lives were taken more seriously. And one crucial element to ensure our survival was the development of spacesuits. But as Dr. Kathy Lewis explains, these suits evolved over time. Well, the demands on spacesuits increased the more they wanted the astronauts and cosmonauts to do over time. The initial spacesuit that the Vostok cosmonauts, beginning with Gagarin, and the Mercury astronauts wore were essentially what pilots refer to as get-me-down suits. These were suits that were to act as backup if the systems in their spacecraft failed, supply them with oxygen communications to get them back down 
safely to Earth. As they developed and made more demands on the safe spacesuits, they had to add insulation for suits that were going to operate outside of a spacecraft, an oxygen supply, obviously, either through a backpack or through a hose, continual communications. And they got a lot of things right. Everyone survived. But they got things wrong, They things that they didn't anticipate. They discovered that air cooling was not sufficient for spacewalking. They had supposed that it worked for Mercury and Vostok, but it did not work for cosmonauts and astronauts outside of the spacecraft. So they turned to a technology that the British had been working on in the Royal Air Force, which was a liquid cooling garment. To this day, both the United States and the and Russia use a form of a liquid cooling garment to maintain a steady temperature inside the spacesuits when astronauts are performing spacewalk. The Apollo lunar suit, they're primary mission for the astronauts were not only to be autonomous from their spacecraft, but to be able to walk around and explore another world. And one thing that came to mind is that in order to walk around, one has to see one's feet. So the traditional astronaut helmet, which was based on a pilot's helmet, gave a somewhat limited lateral view, but did not give a a vertical view. They redesigned the space helmet. They designed a bubble helmet, which gave them a clear view and allowed the astronaut to turn his, they were all men at the time, head around without moving the communications carrier and swiveling around in the the suit. They needed mobility in the lower body. And that was especially the case when NASA introduced the lunar roving vehicle. They had to redesign the suit so the astronaut could bend at his waist. If you look at the current NASA EVA suits, they don't have as much lower body mobility because it isn't necessary. The astronauts are not so much walking, they're using their legs to propel themselves and anchor themselves, but they're not using their legs to walk around. And they've gone through six generations of gloves, but redesigning gloves so astronauts don't suffer overuse, failure, or aches and pains from reuse. And they also have a steady temperature. They've inserted heating elements in the tips of the gloves because when you're up there in space and you have a sunrise, sunset, or daytime every 90 minutes and you're falling in that shadow, your hands get very cold very quickly. The Cold War was an era of espionage, and numerous individuals, including the American couple, the Rosenbergs, and Britain's Cambridge Five, supplied the enemy with valuable state secrets. But did this spying also extend into the realm of space travel? It's a question I put to Dr. Lewis. The Russians and Soviets had a distinct advantage when it comes to espionage. Our NASA program was a civilian program. It was sort of not entirely civilian, um, and it still had national security elements, but they were sufficiently isolated that we could conduct our program in the open. Everything was largely available in the public domain, open source. If you look at the patents that were filed on the equipment, we always joke as historians that a NASA engineer had an idea, just a vague thought, and it would be patented. And so if you, you look at the vast numbers of patents that came out of NASA during that time, everything was out there in the open. 
the USSR is a secret society with very little security. And in fact, I think the West did more in terms of trying to find out exactly what they were doing. They did interviews with scientists who would go to international science conferences to see, you know, get an assessment of what they were doing. There were informal talks. I mean, scientists compare notes naturally and talk among themselves. So they did have an idea of where they were going. And of course, you have people with specialized skills to be able not only to read Soviet newspapers and assess what's going on, but also look at the technical traces that you have. When the USSR launched their first ICBM in late August 1957, there were people who could look at that and and see how the path that it followed and determine the capabilities of the ICBM. They knew that, that the USSR was very close to being able to launch an artificial satellite in space, one of which they had announced they were going to do, as the United States had during the International Geophysical Year. So you have, on the United States side, this this growing specialty of learning how to read the limited indications of the USSR. And then on the Soviet side, you have a vast amount of effort going in and looking at the open and published resources. If you look at declassified CIA briefings and presidential daily briefings and and other intelligence briefings, and you look at the the archives that have made their way to the West from the KGB, both sides had pretty impeccable intelligence and in knowing what the other side was doing. Impeccable intelligence is one thing, ability to act on it right. is another. Even though the USSR had knew everything that the United States was doing, say, for example, for building the Saturn V, they still were not able to make their N1, their lunar rocket, work adequately to fulfill their then-secret mission. A race of any kind, by definition, has winners and losers. But with national prestige and propaganda victories at stake, I wondered if either side in the space race cut corners to try and get ahead. There's always the incentive to pull ahead. But there's always, especially among engineers, there is always the awareness that failure can set you back much further than accelerated success. You know, in dealing with any technology in which there are unknowns, and it was the um, Secretary of Defense, the unknown unknowns are the scariest. Everyone was pushing ahead, but they were very cautious especially when you're dealing with human life. They knew what the cost, and they were very aware of the stunning propaganda losses that death would occur. The USSR was very secretive, and there were all told number of rumors that still go on to this day that they somehow had more failures than they did, which did not happen, but that's the price of secrecy. The moon race really grew out of American failures, Americans' inability to surpass the Soviets' one-upmanship in space, but also the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis. They were very much aware that they had to do everything right. They could not be caught off guard or get over their skis, go too far out. And it's also a difference in the culture 
that Von Braun and his engineers brought with them. They adhere to a very strict testing culture. They were very strict on using test stands to test engines and firing it for far longer than they require just to keep it going, just to see how long it will mm -hmm. sustain itself. That testing culture did not convey with the German technicians who went to the USSR or it was overridden. They did not do the kind of test stand work on rocket engines that the Americans did. And that, that was one of the contributed to the failures of the N1, of full-up test launches of the vehicles instead of having done test and trials of the engines together. You cut corners, but it, some of it is culture. You don't really know what those motivations are. In the early years of the space race, the Soviets had the edge. First satellite in space, first man in space. And then in 1963, Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space, some two decades before American Sally Ride followed suit. Was this indicative of the Soviet Union offering a more progressive, gender-balanced society, or were there other elements at play? The Russian legacy of using women in demonstration flights really began during the 1930s, before World War II as part of their civil defense promotion, what were known as Stalin's Falcons, who were demonstrating their prowess in aviation. Included among them were training women pilots, demonstrating that women could fly as well. There is a famous cross-country flight, the Rodina of an all-woman crew. That was met with much acclaim, and it was a demonstration that women could fly. It was also preparing for what became known as the Air Witches, the female fighter pilots during World War II in the USSR. Women had a probably a larger role in, in um, not only air combat in the war in the Soviet Union, but also in the, the ferrying role that the WASP had played during the war. That said, there was also a great social and economic upheaval after the war, women who had taken over positions of leadership in factories and heavy industry during the war were being pushed out deliberately to make room for men returning from the war. And that was a deliberate policy and was also motivated by the desire to repopulate the country and promotion of motherhood and maternity. And Tereshkova sort of straddled both of those worlds. She was selected on the basis of her Communist Party membership, her legacy of being a war orphan. Her father was killed during World War II, and also her civil defense prowess. She had been a parachutist as part of their civil defense program, their JOSA program after the war. She was worker, single woman, so she was working, but she was not working in heavy industry. She was working in the softer industry, in the textile industry. So she was that perfect middle ground via media of, of iconography of what a woman should be. Capable, but also, after her flight, very willing to be married and have children. Whereas it was a great accomplishment and was touted as a demonstration of Soviet equality among the, among the sexes, it betrayed the fact that women were not being treated that way in the USSR at the time. 
and it took 19 years in the announcement of Sally Ride's flight to spark them to find another woman to preempt Sally Ride's mission. And they drew on not someone in existing in the program, but they found uh, Savitskaya, who was an aerobatic flyer, a sports pilot, who also was the daughter of the Marshal of the Soviet Air Forces, to take that role on. So once again, they found a single individual and plucked, plucked her out. But their bench has never been very deep. If you look at Cosmat selections over the years, been very few women. And in fact, they've been chastised by the United States for, for not selecting women. There are sufficient numbers of women in their engineering corps mm-hmm. from whom their cosmonauts are largely selected today, but they've had a hard time finding women, selecting yeah. women. In the next episode, I talk to civilian astronomer, professor, and NASA astronaut Steve Hawley about his experiences in space. I left grad school, went to NASA so that I could put this telescope in space so that after NASA I could come back and use the telescope to get back to my original project. Dan is back as he interviews the heroic and controversial in Season 3 of Fascinating People, Fascinating Places. He talks to NASA astronauts and examines the space program. He explores the issue of race and talks to the Black Panthers. Dan interviews believers and skeptics about UFOs and alien abductions. The controversial Westboro Baptist Church face his tough questions. Historical experts provide insight into the Irish Rebellion of 1798 and Dan explores the phenomena of the sci-fi series Doctor Who. Here is a sneak peek. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. That coronavirus is a work of God. As I often say, uh, UFOs took an interest in me before I took an interest in them. These officers would kill drug dealers. They didn't care how much dope got sold. There were sectarian relations in Ireland, which had not abated since the 1690s or even since the 1640s. I left grad school, went to NASA so that I could put this telescope in space so that after NASA I could come back and use the telescope to get back to my original project. It straddles fantasy and reality. I went to work the next day to tell my co-workers and a co-worker told me about the UFO he had seen the night before. You show me a church that hasn't filled their pews with divorce and remarriage and have young people fornicating. You show me that church. There were a number of spies, and he named five different forms. I definitely knew I was going to be an astronaut. I don't believe that the New Black Party is one of the largest races or anti-government, anti-Semitic groups. Hell, we've got Antifa. <laughs> they were guinea pigs because they simply didn't have the understanding of what they were doing. People make all kinds of mysteries about this stuff. Some people say they had telepathic contact. It's the most powerful feeling you could ever imagine. There were four crashes within four hours in four different lakes. The military investigated all of them and they never found the explanation to them. We, at the time, we really didn't know how humans would respond to those G-forces. 
when you have secrets, you're invariably going to have people who think there's a huge conspiracy at work. If ufology was a religion, Philip J. Glass would be Satan. You can call yourself anything. You can call yourself Pinocchio. You're not a Christian. You're a liar. We are still the peaceful people that was shipped over here. It's just, hey, we got guns too. It ain't so funny once the rabbit got the gun. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.